Hello and welcome to the Dorkomotive Podcast with Brian Loans. On this episode, we tell the amazing story of the Bill Lear Vapordyne IndyCar, an attempt to run the Indy 500 with a steam-powered race car in 1969 that not only seemed to defy the laws of racing, but also the laws of physics themselves. It was an epic failure and one we're going to investigate on this episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. When it was originally announced that Lear planned to build a steam engine race car, there were plenty of doubting Thomases. As you can see, the car itself is already taking shape. The engine you just saw will sit in here alongside the driver, much like the turbine of Andy Granatelli. Lear makes it clear that he's not entering the racing business. However, he does plan to have two of these completed by mid-March, merely to prove the doubting Thomas is wrong. Long-range plans call for billions of dollars of steam units to be built here in Reno within the next five to 10 years. It's Lear's contention that steam-driven automobiles are the cars of the future. And he's currently investing $10 million. Hey, everybody. Brian Loans here. Dorkomotive Podcast episode on the Vapordyne race car, which never actually was a race car at all, but we're going to talk all about that. You've heard the introduction of this podcast. You heard that audio clip from 1969, which was taken after a news conference that Bill Lear had held explaining the project and inviting the media to take a look at his operation just outside of Reno, Nevada, at an old uh, Air Force base that he had bought. So we need to begin this story by talking about Bill Lear, who is, beyond a shadow of a doubt, one of the greatest inventors of the 20th century and really one of the greatest kind of empirical engineers we can talk about in the modern world, not just in the United States, but his influence um, spanned the decades and spanned it in ways that uh, are almost unbelievable to the point that when you find out what Bill Lear accomplished in his life leading up to this colossal kind of obsession and failure with steam cars, you'll understand why he thought he could conquer this problem too. Because if we go back to Bill Lear, he's born in 1902, joins the Navy, and becomes an expert radio operator. Is obsessed with radios and is intrinsically uh, brilliant when it comes to how they work. This is a guy who didn't finish high school, um, but he was able to figure out how machinery worked very quickly. And he became about the best radio operator expert at the time they had in the Navy. And as soon as he had the opportunity to get out of there, he did. Um, he understood that there was money to be made. And that's one of the interesting things about Bill Lear. Is Bill Lear always understood there was money to be made in different aspects and different areas of his life. And he was good at making it, but he was almost as good at losing it. So Lear is one of these guys that we're going to talk about through his life having these manic swings of, of uh, unimaginable wealth and then being on the rocks and being bankrupt and being unimaginably wealthy again, and it's just kind of the cycle. But in the 1920s, uh, he really comes into his own. Now we're talking about a guy who's in his early 20s, he's out of the service, and he is uh, industrious, and he is creating and inventing electrical solutions um, Things like what would be called a battery eliminator, which it seems weird, but back then uh, it was uh, it's kind of strange to have something that eliminated the battery in something so you could plug it in. Um, that became a big deal. He, he made some money there. Uh, he was creating custom and very um, high-end speakers, really, during the 1920s, if you can believe it. 
He invented miniature tuning coils for radios. This was really his first major invention, and it was something that he had created using a special type of wire that he, again, knew in his head should work. And these coils made up a big part of the weight and size of a radio set back in the 1920s. Well, if you could miniaturize those coils, you could shrink everything down. And as we all know, in electronics, whether it's 2020 or 1920, the goal is always to make things smaller, more portable, more easy to use, more user-friendly. He invents these coils, and he's making them in his mom's basement. And then he gets an is able to display these coils for the people at RCA, which was a massive company at the time. And RCA placed an order for 50,000 of these coils, which immediately put him into business. Now, this made him his first, let's call it small fortune, but it would be what happened next in the late 1920s that would turn uh, Bill Lear into not just a guy who was smart, but also someone who would have a, a measurable effect on your life and mine. Because in the late 1920s, he and a guy named Paul Galvin got together and created something called the car radio. So Bill Lear invents the car radio, and they need to come up with a name, he and Galvin. Galvin had a company called the Paul Galvin Manufacturing Company, which didn't really have a lot of ring to it. So they were on a cross-country road trip to be hawking their new fangled car radios and decided to name their company Motorola. So the Motorola that has been around for about 100 years was founded by Bill Lear, and it was uh, one of his major triumphs inventing the car radio. In 1931, Bill Lear buys his first airplane. Always been obsessed with flight. He buys his first plane and um, has some disconcerting uh, moments behind the tiller of this plane because, you know, he's trying to fly in fog and and all kinds of stuff. He's kind of a young pilot. He understands in his mind that there's got to be a better way to do this. It's super dangerous. So he invents the radio directional finder, which was... An incredible invention for aviators at this time where uh, in a blind flight situation, if you could not tell what course you were on or what course you were heading to or where you're trying to go, you could use this radio direction finder to basically get your airplane back on track and get you where you needed to go. He took that invention and invented autopilot. So Bill Lear invents the car radio and then he invents autopilot. And then he invents the first ever automatic landing system for airplanes. And if you know, every runway has this uh, ILS or ALS system on it now. Uh, It's been continuously refined, but they all have this system. Bill Lear invented that, but he did invent autopilot. There was no such thing. Lear invents autopilot. In 1960, Bill Lear, after making tens of millions of dollars on these uh, incredible aviation developments, decides that he wants to build his own airplane. So while he leaves his company in the United States in the hands of the management that he had put in place, he goes to Switzerland. And he goes to Switzerland because he's going to use a kind of an abandoned um, design for a, a Swiss fighter jet to make his own personal corporate jet from. Lira believed that this particular Swiss design, he would be able to take it and stretch it out, make some small changes to it, and turn it into what was then uh, a novel concept of a low-cost, very fast corporate jet. To this point, if you wanted to have a corporate airplane, you had to go to Boeing or, or Lockheed or one of these big companies, and they would build you a big old honking plane. But what Lear looked at from his own lifestyle, he's like, I don't need all that. He says, I just want something I can get in that's fast, that can get me from... Uh, you know, one side of the country to the other that's going to travel uh, with, you know, jet engines. It's going to be quick. Uh, it's going to be comfortable. 
And so he goes over to Switzerland and he works for a couple of years uh, on this design. And unfortunately, it, it was kind of a nightmare in Switzerland for, for Lear. He was on the right track, but he didn't have the support engineering wise. He did not have the backing financially really he needed. And they suffered a couple of crashes with prototypes. So once the crashes happened and he was struggling for engineering support, a lot of his financial backing simply went away. Um, so he ended up selling that company, selling off the the rights of that company and moving back to the United States. When he moved back to the United States, he shipped the entire Swiss air building, airplane building operation to Wichita, Kansas. Every wrench, every nut, every bolt, every prototype, every uh, blueprint, every design. The reason he went to Wichita, Kansas was because at the time, Wichita was the absolute and utter center of the uh, aeronautical industry in the United States. It is where airplanes were built. It's where airlines were based. It is where all the brain power was. Using his budget from the previous company, he had um, he had sold the rights to, the, to this original kind of Lear concept for about $14 million. So he definitely had money in his pocket. Plus, he had his accumulated wealth from the other company, which was still coming in. So he goes to Wichita and he basically goes to every single airplane manufacturer and hires their best and smartest engineers for this new project that he is calling the Learjet. By 1963, they have test flights. And by 1964, they are selling the Learjet, which absolutely changed the entire game when it came to corporate travel. This is a jet that flew 560 miles an hour could seat six or eight people, depending on how you had it set up. And it was $400,000 in 1964 money, less than the competition. Now, if we take that 400000 from 50 years ago, we translate that into like tens of millions, uh, multiple millions at minimum, but probably tens of millions in 2020 money. It was an instant success. At the same time, he's inventing the Learjet. Part of the Learjet experience is that you want to have comfortable passengers. You want them to be entertained and relaxed as they fly, and so there needed to be music. And so he needed to kind of figure out this new way to, to, to have music delivered to people on his airplanes, a way that they could interchange it and have what they wanted and kind of, uh, you know, have that kind of luxury feel. So as he's developing and testing and beginning to market the Learjet, he goes ahead and invents the 8-track. So not only did he invent the car radio, autopilot, uh, radio guidance for airplanes, automatic landing systems, and the Learjet, the guy also invented the 8-track tape. And we make jokes about 8-tracks, at least people used to make jokes about 8-tracks, because they were kind of clunky and weird, and they were that big plastic cartridge that you jammed into a radio. But at the time, this was the, the best, highest quality auto you could get, and 8-tracks certainly became a massive part of the culture all the way up until the cassette deck was offered. But, you you know, 8-track radio players or 8-track tape players um, in cars and in any sort of other function of life was, was just the way it went, and that went on for a long time. So Lear, um, hyper-wealthy, you know, he's really pretty much done it all at this point. And in 1967, something interesting happens. Learjet runs into some problems. There was a crash or two. Uh, orders started to slow down a little bit. Cash flow became very concerning. And Lear, looking around, figured that he did not have by himself the financial wherewithal to actually make this operation get over the hump. It often happens in business, especially like in a business like manufacturing aircraft. The one thing that's going to kill a company like that is going to be cash flow. 
And even if you have a big-time wealthy owner, um, the big-time wealthy owner, i.e. Bill Lear, uh, doesn't necessarily want to go broke trying to float his own company. So he sells Learjet to Gates Rubber. And it sounds like a weird place to sell it, but the Gates Rubber Company, still in business today, making high-quality belts and hoses, the stuff that uh, you probably put on your car when you do service or have uh, have used in the past, um, they wanted to be a very diversified company. So they bought Learjet from Bill Lear. He made tens of millions of dollars, and Bill Lear was not he was set for life before but he was doubly set for life now he was invested all over the world gold mines and all kinds of different businesses and this was something that um he it was bittersweet for him because he loved the company he loved being the guy that changed corporate travel forever he loved being the dude that invented the learjet uh but at the same time uh he did not want to go broke uh holding on to that title and it was bittersweet because he lost effectively control of this company that he had run pretty much with an iron fist. And one of his great lines of all time, he's got a couple of great ones before we move on to the, the race car stuff. But uh, he was having a dispute with a couple of his engineers and they were coming up with the design for the Learjet. And the guy, one of them came stomping into his office and said, man, you make every single decision around here. And Bill Lear sat up at his desk and looked at this guy across the table and he said, you know what? I'll make you a deal. You put up half the money. You get to make half the decisions. I guess the guy kind of turned around and walked out. The second was people were initially a little critical of the Learjet when it came out because you couldn't stand up inside it. One of the reasons that a Learjet is so fast is because it's so compact. It has a very small kind of silhouette to push through the air, and it's sleek and low. So you kind of crouch down. I've never flown in a Learjet, but I have watched the videos on YouTube of people that have. And you got to kind of crouch down and shuffle your way into your seat. But once you're seated, you're in a beautiful chair. You're very comfortable. And so some reporters were asking him if he thought it was, uh, if he thought this was actually a smart idea, this airplane that you can't even stand up inside. And his description was basically the thing's fast enough that you're going to get where you're going in a couple hours. And secondly, you can't stand up inside a Rolls Royce, and they sell a lot of those too. And another kind of brilliant um, tack there, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you can't stand up inside a Lincoln. You can't stand up inside a Rolls Royce, but people love riding around in them. You can't stand up in my plane, but it's going to get you at, at 560 miles an hour. going to get you where you need to go in a very quick hurry, and you're not going to need to spend a lot of time walking around. So this is, um, in so many ways, we, we kind of picked that peak moment for Bill Lear and the success of the Learjet after all of the other inventions that he created that had um, a real direct effect on American life still does today. You get in the car, the first thing you do is flip the radio on, right? Well, thanks, Bill Lear, for that. So now we have to get into this pursuit of steam and how it happened. And believe it or not, Bill Lear became obsessed with steam after a near-death experience. Let's find out what that was, how it affected his life, and why it set him on a path to try to tackle the Indy 500 with a boiler. So as you can imagine, uh, during 1969, when this whole story was unfolding, uh, there was a lot of stuff written about Bill Lear and this quest. And I'm going to start by quoting a Sports Illustrated story from the February 3rd, 1969 issue. The title of the story was called Let There Be Steam, and it was written by a guy named Bob Ottom, who was one of my favorite Sports Illustrated writers of all time. Uh, Bob Ottom has since passed, but an incredible motorsports journalist. And here's how he begins his story. This whole thing started, William Lear says, when he died, literally died. His heart stopped on the operating table and all the systems inside him began slowly ticking to a stop while a team of doctors worked to pump life back into him. 
When that crisis was over and he was alive again, he began to look around with a new sense of purpose. He was 66 and retired. He had millions, and all he needed was a mission. He had been everywhere. He had done everything. He had developed a jet airplane that has become the darling of the business world. He had an inventive talent, and one more thing. He was an inspired crapshooter, all of which makes up the best set of qualifications any man ever needed to go automobile racing. Now, quoting Lear, I was technically dead, he says. This was last January, and for a minute or so, my heart stopped. There was no pulse beat or blood pressure. Nothing. I had a broken artery near my brain, which they were repairing. My nose wouldn't stop bleeding, and that's why they were operating. To make matters worse, before that, I had broken my damn leg getting out of my limousine, and this whole thing knocked the hell out of me for about three months. When I came out of it all, I wanted something new to sink my teeth into. Something big, maybe even something to compete with my old company, Learjet. Lear tried a couple of projects, but they turned out to be five or six million dollar a year things and still too insignificant to warrant my total effort, he said. He put some money into a Montana oil field for something to do, and first thing, six high-paying wells came in, which ought to give the IndyCar guys an idea of what this year could be in for. Still, Lear claims to be unimpressed with wealth. I've never felt wealthy, he says. What counts is altering a way of life for the better. For instance, I can't play any musical instrument. Hell, I can't even carry a tune in a handbag, but I showed my love for music by developing the first really fine radio set, the Majestic. It was my first successful business in 1928. Stock went from $10 to 1600 a share. Then I pioneered car radios, and you will note the Motorola has not exactly been a failure. But my love of aviation exceeded all other loves, so I left Motorola to start Lear Aviation, which became Lear Inc., which I ultimately sold for many, many millions of dollars. Autumn continues. Lear also developed radio navigation instruments that are still the standard of the industry, and he holds more than 100 patents. He is perhaps most admired for his autopilot, and in 1950 won the Collier Award, the highest honor the aircraft industry can bestow. And you'd better believe he'd made a dollar or two from his Learjet stereo tape decks for cars. But to Lear, neither car radios, nor autopilots, nor jet planes, nor tape decks were the big thing. Then he discovered air pollution. The stuff was there all along hanging low and acrid over California, stinging lungs and redding the eyes of millions, and being thickened every day. A problem worth tackling. And for Bill Lear, this problem worth tackling came into uh, its own for him. He was going to develop a steam car. It was the idea of a steam car, not necessarily a steam race car that had captured his attention, but when he started to develop the steam car to come up with his plans there, he was convinced by a guy named Ken Wallace, who we'll talk about in a little while, that he should pursue a race car to promote this entire idea of building steam cars in general. So one of the things about Bill Lear that we have to talk about is how he is such a brilliant guy. He is so smart, really smarter than probably anybody that he's ever worked with or will ever work with over the course of his life, and yet seemingly can be swayed on things. And maybe it's because he liked the media. Maybe it's because he liked the attention. But there had to have been a part of Bill Lear once he went down this road to develop the steam car and understanding what he was getting himself into. He had to have known what the end result of this was going to be. Because when we get into some of the physics involved here, when we get into some of the things that they try to overcome while designing not only the race car, but the actual road car they wanted to build in general, Bill Lear is a very smart man. And Bill Lear, I have to believe in my heart of hearts, understands some of the problems that they're facing are not tackleable because they, frankly, defy the laws of known physics on Earth. But we're not there yet. We're still talking about a guy who has found now this idea. He has found this particular drive in his life. He wants to solve the air pollution problem, and he wants to do it with steam power. 
Bill Lear will certainly not be the only person that has ever messed with steam cars. In fact, we have to take a quick look back in history and talk about steam cars for a minute to understand why this is even a conversation anyone is having in the year 1969 and why people are still having steam car conversations today in 2020. And it's because it's a very alluring thing. Stanley Steamers were some of the best cars built of their day, and they were built for a very long time. The white steam car was an amazing car that people bought and drove around. And, of course, the Doble steam car is the one that we're going to talk about many times here because Abner Doble was really the last guy to make a workable steam car in any sort of saleable volume. You have Bessler and some other people that come along later and certainly build some modern versions of Doble's work. But Abner Doble did things with his steam car in the 1930s that um, traditional internal combustion engine cars just couldn't do. Uh, the things were incredibly fast, luxurious, efficient. He developed some of the uh, advances in technology that Lear would try to take to the next level. But steam cars themselves are really not that bad an idea. It is when we start talking about them in terms of... Um, being race cars or being incredibly practical in a modern sense is when they get a little bit outlandish. But to think that a steam car in and of itself is a bad idea is kind of disingenuous. And, and again, uh, there was a time in history when the Stanley Steamer was the fastest car in the world, period, end of story. Frank Marriott uh, ran the car 120-plus miles an hour back uh, on Ormond Beach in Florida in, like, the 190s and set everybody's jaw on the sand. I mean, this was an incredible thing. And Stanley Steamer cars uh, were very expensive. They were certainly kind of toys of the wealthy, but they were also highly functional, advanced for their time, and they existed into the 1920s. I mean, it was not an uncommon thing for someone to buy, typically a rich person, a steam car. They were quiet. They were refined. They were more luxurious. They didn't make smoke. They didn't smell bad. They didn't pop and bang. They were basically kind of gliding along, and they were so heavy that they rode very well on their springs as well. So um, the steam car in and of itself is a really cool concept and something that still fascinates people today because the power of steam is the allure. The idea of taking a droplet of water and expanding it 1,600-plus times and harnessing that power is something that engineers are still obsessed with today. Uh, when we think about how we get all of our electricity into our homes, it comes from steam, guys, by and large, and it's how we make that steam, whether it's nuclear power, whether it's coal, um, is one of the big you know, considerations and one of the big great environmental debates we have today. But at the end of the day, the reason the lights are on, the reason that you're listening to this podcast at home is because somewhere in a land far, far from you, or maybe not that far from you, uh, there is a giant turbine that is being spun by steam, and that turbine is spinning a generator, and that generator is making electricity that you are consuming right now. So steam is a giant part of our modern world, and before we just get too far off the rails of kind of laughing this idea of a steam-powered race car off... Um, it is not that bad an idea on paper. The badness comes when we try to translate it into a working race car. And so that really needs to be perhaps the next part of our story. And maybe even before we get to that, one of the more outlandish and incredible things that Bill Lear was planning on doing with his now uh, Reno-based steam car operation was not just building an Indy car to race at the Indy 500, but, well, frankly, building another place to maybe run the Indy 500. If you think I'm kidding, I'm not. 
Lear's plans to build the $500,000 track were revealed during a noontime news conference. It'll be an exact duplicate of the famed Indianapolis Raceway, home of the Memorial Day 500. The reasons for building the two-and-a-half-mile oval are many. Current United States Auto Club rules for steam vehicles are non-existent. According to Lear, the rules are so nebulous and vague, chances of racing his steam engine are questionable. Lear's track, which is already under construction, will be completed by early March, allowing two months' testing time to prove to USAC that a steam engine racer is not only feasible, but competitive. The track will also be used for testing conventional automobiles, and one of the first experiments will involve steam-driven California Highway Patrol cars. Yes, Bill Lear announced that he was going to build an exact replica of Indianapolis Motor Speedway in the middle of the Nevada desert outside of Reno where his place was located. And he didn't just say it, he actually started to do it as we go back and once again quote the Bob Autumn story. Even if everything goes wrong and Lear can't go to Indy, perhaps Indy can come to him. Keeping pace with his Blockbuster A Day series of developments, a few days ago Lear's crews began pushing sand around just off the old airport runways. It began to look strangely like a racetrack in the desert. It is, Lear said. I'm building an exact duplicate of the Indianapolis Speedway right here. I mean exact. It'll be two and a half miles, all blacktopped, all banked the same, same curves and straights, same pits, everything. We'll start practicing here March 1st with the steam race cars. And lest this sound too fancy, remember that it'll be cheaper for us to practice here than keep running back and forth to Indy with the cars and the crews. Then we'll go to Indy with our shakedown completed. And again, he didn't just say this. Uh, there are people that say you can still in an airplane, and when you're flying over Reno and flying over this area, you can see the outline of what he had bulldozed in the desert. It never got paved, but it did get graded, and it did get actually you know, bulldozed into the correct shape. So he was incredibly serious about this, and it's just it's an incredible thing to think about in today's world we don't think in these terms we don't think about a guy who gets obsessed with an idea uh be it a steam race car a steam car in general whatever and then throwing an incredible amount incredible amount of money and resources at it and being able to do it out of his own pocket and this is where the story gets really interesting to me because um Obviously, a lot of people have come up with ideas that are going to, you know, challenge the norms of the automotive world. I think we see successfully uh, in many ways. I think we see it, it happening today uh, with what's happening with Tesla. This is an example of somebody finally actually pulling it off. Um, and Bill Lear scared the crap out of the Detroit automakers, not because they thought he was going to unlock some incredible secret of steam, but because he had enough money to actually do something that could force them into having to commit resources. And it can be logically argued that what Bill Lear was trying to do with this whole enterprise was simply get one of the big manufacturers to buy him out, to shut him up, or to buy his operation. That, in my mind, is his end goal of this whole thing. I believe he was trying to he was trying to capture the attention of a General Motors, of a Ford, of a Chrysler, even of an American Motors who actually did come and tour his facility for them to go, okay, here's $20 million dollars. Uh, this is ours now. Have a nice life, Mr. Lear. Obviously, that never happened, but when we talk about the lengths he goes through for some of these uh, experiments and things they will do, you'll kind of understand that. So Bill Lear has overcome his injuries. He's overcome his near-death experience. He's overcome um, almost an attempted suicide. He was planning on getting in one of his airplanes and simply flying out over the ocean at one point because he was feeling bad about feeling bad. And then he gets caught up with the 
uh, saving of the environment and the steam-powered car. He hires 130 engineers, and he gets them all out to Reno. And this is not exactly a time in history where Reno is some happening place. It's a small desert outpost. It's uh, you know a couple of casinos and this rickety old airbase. But he has hired the best people in so many ways in the world for what he is trying to do. Not a lot of these people have steam engineering experience, but almost all of them have very advanced automotive engineering experience. And remember, the 133 people are simply not there just to build a race car. The race car is going to be the leader of this operation, but ultimately it is producing an actual passenger car that he wants to do out here in Reno. So we have the hundreds of engineers uh, working tirelessly, and we have to have somebody kind of steering the ship. And this person steering the ship is uh, a guy named Ken Wallace, who I mentioned before. Ken Wallace is going to be the lead designer of the race car. He's also going to have a major effect on the passenger car development as well. And Ken Wallace has what can only be described as a bizarre, mysterious, and checkered history at the Indy 500. It was Wallace who was involved with Andy Granatelli to develop the turbine cars that ran in 1967. Some people say that Wallace took credit for a lot of the things Colin Chapman actually designed, and Wallace was kind of an engineer that could speak well and was never really um, as smart as he projected himself to be. Wallace in 1968 went to work for Carroll Shelby to develop his turbine car. This was a four-wheel drive turbine that had um, kind of all the the bells and whistles that the Granatelli car had in 67, but with some changes. USAC came in. They changed the rules to try to limit the turbine cars. They did not want turbine cars dominating the Indy 500. And after Parnelli Jones nearly won it in 67, they wanted to make sure that that really didn't happen again. So Ken Wallace uh, was forced to redesign the air inlet on Shelby's car to make it smaller. Smaller air inlet means smaller power for the turbine engine, and the cars were very slow. Unbeknownst to anybody... Wallace decided to cheat, and he designed an air inlet that at stationary position was the correct size, but would expand when the cars were running at speed. Other people heard about this, other people found out about it, and the USAC officials were going to do a surprise inspection on Shelby's car. They knew it was coming, they packed up and literally ran off into the night, with Shelby never speaking to Wallace again, and Wallace's name basically being mud at the speedway. But that didn't bother Bill Lear. The way that Lear met Wallace is even weird. Wallace wanted to buy a boat. He wanted to buy a sailboat that was very expensive, and he went and somehow found Lear and requested about a $40,000 loan in 1968 for this boat. And they got to talking, and they got to conversing, and they became friends, and Lear bought him the boat outright and made him the lead engineer on this on this project and this is when we really need to start talking in depth about the Vapordyne race car which is probably the most aptly named failed race car of all time because yes a physical car was built but its performance potential was anything but realistic and really was more close to vapor than it was a race car this episode of the Dorkomotive podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it. Let's continue our character examination of Ken Wallace here as we continue to quote from Bob Autumn's 1969 Sports Illustrated story. 
The chief designer of Lear's steam car is a wandering British car builder named Ken Wallace, who is either a mastermind or the Peck's bad boy of racing. Wallace meandered into Indy a few years ago, helped SDP impresario Andy Granatelli produce a sensational turbine car in 1967, and the next year built a pair of turbine cars for Carroll Shelby. The Shelby-Wallace race cars were mysteriously withdrawn just before final inspection, and Indy promptly exploded with charge and countercharge as to whether the cars were cheaters, that is, illegal, under the specifications. Wallace left Indy under a sort of mechanical cloud, and even now, Banks is not sure that USAC would allow Wallace to come back to the Speedway until certain allegations have been cleared up. No matter, Wallace doesn't plan on going back to Indy anyway, as he says, I'll be too busy working on the passenger car at that time. What he does plan to do is build two steam race cars and send them to Indy with a team of drivers and mechanics. The fact that he has Wallace to rub into the racing establishment touches a well of ironic humor in Lear. I know all about Wallace's background, he says. I've heard all about the cars that didn't make the race, and I've heard that all of it is still under a cloud. But I also know he's a great engineer and a race car designer. He has a following second to none among the machinists and engineers, and he already has attracted a group to Reno that I feel can meet this challenge. It hadn't started that way. Wallace walked in one day last August and asked Lear to lend him $39,000 to buy a 36-foot racing yacht. He said he had to put $2,000 down on the yacht, and I figured if he could borrow the rest, he could get a government contract to do some research. Well, I liked him so much, I bought him the yacht and made him my chief engineer as well. With the yacht tied up at San Francisco and Wallace aboard at Reno, the steam race car project began to take shape, and Reno began to brace itself for what can only be described as a wild adventure. But as everybody keeps asking, what is a steam racing car supposed to look like? People keep getting a mental picture of something pretty big and bulky filled with dials and tubes and whistling like a calliope, all with a big boiler and a guy wearing a red bandana shoveling coal into a furnace. Yes, because what do you think a steam race car is supposed to look like? No one has built a steam race car in this country for 50 years at this point. 40, 50 years we're talking about. And even then, the ones they built were... Were pretty wild and as it turns out the car that ken wallace would design looked pretty racy it looked pretty on the outside normal for a late 1960s indy car in fact it looked almost identical to the turbine cars of andy granatelli and carol shelby more so the granatelli car is a much more boxy shape a car they called silent sam i would encourage you to go to google images and just image search indy 500 1967 turbine car and when you do that, you'll see the shape, and it kind of looks like um, a Pinewood Derby car that your kid would make in the Boy Scouts, that kind of oblong or rounded corner, somewhat melted bar of soap rectangle. Very basic shape, but that's the one that Wallace stuck with when he designed what a car that we would know now as the Lear Vapordyne. Quote the Autumn story again, we get to this line, which is kind of interesting, that says, The physical race car, Wallace said, doesn't matter much. Anybody can build a chassis once the power problem is solved. The drawings for the Reno Steam are looking awful lot like the new wedge-shaped turbine racers built for Granatelli next year, and the next howl you'll hear is from England's Colin Chapman, who designed them. Plans are to plunk the boiler up there beside the driver, put the engine just over the rear wheels, and go racing. Since the racing world is not exactly crawling with steam-powered experts, an output figure of 450 horsepower that Lear has released is being bandied about. This would be dandy for the piston engine people, since they are producing far more horsepower than that with conventional engines. What they'll be hearing about more, though, is the steamer's inlet valve effect. And to talk about the race car itself before we go into the technology that ultimately is a pipe dream that fails on every single level, the car itself is very um, typical for an IndyCar of this era. 
so to speak. Uh, it does have four-wheel drive, which was kind of an oddity. Um, the four-wheel drive turbine cars of both Granatelli and Shelby kind of brought this on. So uh, Wallace stayed with that four-wheel drive design. And again, the shape of the car, pretty typical. Everything going on, of course, under the skin was going to be different. Um, there were two options to talk about here as far as the engines went for these cars. One was going to be a turbine, uh, which seemed a steam turbine, which seems to be sensical. But the other and far more fascinating option that is being discussed here, making 450 horsepower, is an engine that they called the Double Delta. And the Double Delta... Uh, was a really wild engine design of which a working prototype was built. And if we can talk about this engine, it is a six-cylinder engine that has 12 pistons in it. The pistons actually run towards each other in the cylinder bores. There are three crankshafts in a triangular configuration. So if you were to have this engine installed in the car, there'd be a crankshaft on the top where you'd normally have a valve cover. Um, on a normal engine, you'd, you'd take a cover off, there would be a crank there. And there are crankshafts in the lower corners as well. Each crankshaft, of course, has a set of pistons on it. And the V6 style engine uh, has those, those multiple sets of pistons running into each other towards the center. In the middle of the engine is a rotary valve, which controls the steam distribution. And because the rotary valve is basically in the center of this triangular-shaped engine, the ports are symmetrically spaced to each cylinder and it would basically clear up any sort of um, distribution issues. If each cylinder was getting the proper amount and the equal amount of steam, um, that's how it was supposed to work. Now, the guy who was put in charge of designing this particular engine uh, was a man named Rich, Richard Mosier, who worked for Chrysler, was a, a mechanical engineer for the Chrysler Corporation, and he was hired on September 2, 1968, and quoting from a story called the Lear Vapordyne Steam Car, posted on a steam car website by a user named T. Kimmel 3, who actually is very educated. I read a lot of his stuff, and this guy's been uh, down the rabbit hole, so to speak. But let's talk about this double delta engine. And to quote his story, the Deltic-style engine in this car was designed from scratch by Richard Mosier, who went to work for Lear on September 2, 1968. When he went up to Reno to work at the old Stead Air Force Base, there was two people, Lear and Wallace, kneeling on the floor with three circles representing the crankshafts drawn on a sheet of paper, full-sized. Mosier designed the engine from there. We can only assume that Wallace was influenced by the big Napier Delta diesel engines the British were using in torpedo boats at the time. The diesel was a powerful and compact engine that worked well with two-cycle diesel systems because of the way the two-cycle diesel scavenged. There was no real purpose to use that design in a steam engine, although there were some clever aspects. And one of the clever aspects was the fact that there was a displacement limit on uh, cars or car engines that could be used at the Indy 500 during this time frame. Remember, there's no specs for a steam car. No one's ever attempted to build a steam Indy car, so it's not like there's a rule book for them to follow. In fact, as they're building this car, no one even thinks to come up with a rule book because no one ever thinks it will actually work. And at the end of the day, Lear uses that as kind of an excuse. But we continue on. A lot of resources were thrown into the project, and in six months, there was a working engine with three cranks and 12 pistons. The bore was 2.52 inches, and the connecting rods were fork and knife style to get the cylinders all in the same plane. The mean effective pressure calculations made so the engine was designed for 500 horsepower. The valving was done by a rotary valve in the middle of everything made with three parts so cutoff could be adjusted. Modern gas turbine seals were used and having been copied from a Pratt & Whitney helicopter turbine. 
The best part of this story is that Lear ordered the turbine from Pratt & Whitney, took it apart to study how the seals were made, and didn't pay for it. After a while, Pratt & Whitney started to harass him about the engine, so he packed all the pieces in a box and shipped them back. The stories just go on forever. Of even greater interest is the fact that the Napier Delta engine had two crankshafts rotating one direction and a third counter-rotating. Nobody told Mosier about this important fact, so he had all three rotating the same way. He did careful calculations with the three crankshafts, made each of the 360 degrees in complete circle, and got things more or less to work. The pistons did not meet in the middle every time, but they did not hit each other either. The steam generator was pure genius. It was designed by Salifi Gassemi, a recent Stanford PhD graduate in, graduate in fluidics and a, nat a native of Iran where his family was on good terms with the Shah. Salifi started working on January 1, 1969 and began building the boiler in March and had a running steam generator in May that would make steam for a 700-horsepower engine and it would fit inside the car. Lear patented Salifi's design and put his own name on it, of course because that's what guys do. So things actually, at this point, maybe appear to be a bit on the promising side. They have this kind of crazy 12-cylinder uh, Deltic-style V6, or sorry, 6-cylinder, 12-piston Deltic-style V6. And again, uh, if you're not familiar with the Deltic style of engine, think about a cylinder bore, and in a normal engine, there is one piston moving up and down. Well, in a Deltic-style engine, there are two pistons in that bore, and as they actually come together, they're going to be closing in on each other at the same time. They will stop short of hitting each other, and the space between them would be the combustion chamber in a diesel or the expansion chamber for steam. You would shoot the steam into that space as the two pistons are close together, and the expanding steam would then force the pistons apart, causing the engine to turn, and that's how you're going to make the horsepower. So one of the great innovations that comes from this car is this particular boiler or steam generator design. And it gives a lot of promise to the project because all of a sudden, uh, one of the major pieces you need to actually get this car to work is going to fit in the chassis. And they know the engine's going to fit in the chassis because it's pretty small. Lear was so proud of the steam generator design, which again, a young engineer came up with that he had basically stolen the patent by putting his own name on it, that he was way more than happy to tell the reporter from the AP that came to the press conference back in 1969. And here's the interview. It really is an incredible sounding piece. Now this is a partially completed steam generator. This is going to be for the Indianapolis 500. This generator will generate enough heat to heat 200 homes. At the same time, it will develop about 800 horsepower. How much uh, tubing are we talking about here, and how long does it take to make something like that? When this uh, generator is complete, it will have 800 feet of tubing in it and stainless steel. You said something earlier today that I found amazing, that the 800 horsepower turned out by this compares extremely favorably with the old locomotives. Well, uh, this boiler here, as you can see, is about 21 inches in diameter, about 25 inches long and it puts out 800 horsepower compared with a, uh, a locomotive that put out 1,400 horsepower. And that's quite a lot larger, you'll have to admit. Go a little bit more into depth on this engine. We're going to go to Popular Mechanics uh, in 1969. This is a story written by a guy named Michael Lamb. And Lamb was allowed in. Uh, it's Popular Mechanics, so he was given a little bit more leeway than perhaps other reporters. And this is what Lamb had to say about the engine. What better way to shorten the stroke and to add RPM than by having twin pistons in each cylinder? These meeting basically head-on in the middle. This way, Lear engineers have kept the stroke short while giving ample room for steam expansion. 
I would estimate that the Lear reciprocation engine must displace about 150 cubic inches. It's a high revving power plant capable of an easy 450 horsepower and gets this power either at stall or at top RPM. Steam engines don't need to rev to develop power and torque. The Lear cars need RPM only because they won't have any transmissions. The engine's three short crankshafts have two throws apiece, making each crank much more rigid than either an inline or V configuration. The Lear 6 is extremely light and compact for its output. Each crankshaft has a gear on one end. These three gears all connect and help rotate a central power gear that turns the car's wheels. The triangular cylinder arrangement ad again adapts well to the steam valving. Steam is piped into the middle of each cylinder via short ports that run from the rotary valve caged inside the triangle itself. The rotary valve is equidistant from all cylinders, thus all inlet tubes remain short and the same length, giving consistently high pressure to every cylinder. In some steam engines, the cylinders farther from the main steam inlet get short-changed on pressure, but not with this design. Steam pressure is generated inside a fairly conventional multi-circuit cylindrical boiler. Their Lear people tend to be rather secretive about many aspects of their operations, so they weren't willing to give us details about the steam boiler, or engines, or the condenser for that matter. But to look at it, the boiler uses nine coils, each fitted concentrically inside the other. A burner in the center is fired by kerosene and generates terrific heat, much higher than conventional steam engine designs. Lear mentioned a figure of 2,000 degrees. I mean, it all sounds really good, right? I mean, this sounds really good. We have our kind of weird-looking Deltic style of engine that we're being told is coming along pretty well. He's got mock-ups of it. He technically has one on the dyno that they're testing. We have this legitimately progressive engineering feat of a steam generator or boiler, which is the lasting kind of legacy of this car. This particular boiler design really is the, the most forward-looking, forward-reaching engineering feat in, uh, in this entire project. And then we kind of go totally off the rails. There's one thing he says in that interview that should send the red flags up to anybody that knows anything about race cars, or even if you're a race car fan. Let's talk about weight for a second. Let's talk about 800 feet of stainless steel tubing inside that steam generator, a.k.a. boiler. 800 feet of tubing alone in one section of the car, and we haven't even started talking about the fact that this thing's four-wheel drive, and it's pretty big in terms of its dimensions, and Wallace is telling the world that this car is going to come in and weigh about 1,350 pounds. So right off the bat, this is where things go sideways when the physics come up. The weight of this thing is going to be absolutely monstrous if it even gets finished at all. And now we have to go to the real thing that killed this project and the thing that, um, well, I don't know if there's one thing. Obviously, there's a lot of things that killed this project. But in terms of the end goal of what they were trying to achieve, uh, the thing that really put the binders on this was the fact that this was going to be um, effectively a kind of closed circuit style of steam power, meaning there was going to be steam generated in the boiler. The steam was going to be used either to spin a turbine engine or to use this double delta piston engine. Then that steam was going to go into a condenser, be returned to water, and then the whole process would start again. Nothing was going to be escaping. So the idea would be that they would fill this thing up and you'd be able to run the Indy 500, you'd be able to run the California 500, you'd be able to, in theory, uh, run a multitude of races before you needed to actually top this thing back off, off again with water. And this was going to be the process he used in the steam cars on the road as well. So it was going to be used, if we can think about an air conditioner in your house, that's really the, the best way to think about this. If you're confused at the principle, 
think about a, a window air conditioner in your home. You slide it in the window, you turn that baby on, and how does it work? Well, it takes the Freon, it pumps the Freon through itself, it takes the Freon, and basically the Freon changes states from liquid to gas uh, as it is sent through the condenser and then sent back through the coils. The air blows across the coils, you get cold you get, you get, know, cold uh, air in your house, the Freon then gets reconstituted, and it goes and it goes and it goes. Same as your car air conditioner as well you know that if the thing stops working, sometimes you have to go recharge your air conditioner because the Freon is leaked out of it, or in this case, the R134A or whatever the chemical we use in the modern time is. But this is what Lear wanted to do with the steam cars, and it's a brilliant concept, right? Unfortunately, when you make a condenser, um, your little air conditioner in the window is one thing, but you're talking about making a a 700-horsepower steam engine or a 500-horsepower steam engine. You need a condenser that is absolutely the size of a Mack truck. You need a condenser that is enormous, and that is not something you can do with a race car, nor is it something that even was considered in the race car. In fact, these guys had these little dinky condensers uh, kind of placed around the car that, on paper, even if you didn't know anything about steam engines or physics or what you are trying to accomplish here, it was very clear that those would be insufficient to do the job. And going back to our 1969 popular mechanic story by Michael Lamb, uh, we have some criticism and or skepticism creeping in from the guys that actually know science writing about this project. Lamb writes, When I asked Lear and Wallace how they kept weight so low in their power plants and supporting components, they answered only with a cryptic space-age technologies, quote-unquote. While unsatisfactory, this answer probably carries a good deal of truth. Lear is making good use of the latest knowledge of metallurgy, thermodynamics, and race car design. The final major part of Lear's steam system is the condenser. His engineers have managed to bring down the size from huge to manageable. In the past, condensers traditionally had to be built very large or very inefficient. When large, they weighed tons and took up terrific amounts of space. They were much too big for race cars. When inefficient, they couldn't condense enough system steam to keep the car from stopping every few miles for more water. The Lear steam car won't just use plain water. It won't need any refills. Again, one, no one's giving out a specific formula, but Lear's told me it's an aqueous solution with a soluble lubricant. Lear's idea is to build a closed system that never, or hardly ever, needs replenishing. So there is a solution for that problem as well, as there always is. I'm going to quote a 1969 Esquire story called What Bill Lear Wants, Bill Lear Invents. Lear thinks he has solved most of the problems that thwarted his steam predecessors. With his new system, a car will be able to start in 30 seconds at 40 degrees below zero. It'll heat up to 750 degrees Fahrenheit, but remain cool to the touch. It'll provide heat and cooling when the engine isn't running. It will have an auxiliary power plant for electrical service, steering, and brakes. Most of all, and most important of all, since this is what has stumped his predecessors, it will require no more water than the conventional automobile, primarily because Lear has developed a new fluid, a polymerized water, to mix with regular water. The Lear steam engine, which will be so powerful it will have to be equipped with a control system, yet able to yield better mileage than conventional engines, is triangularly shaped, 19 inches by 20 inches, with 6 cylinders, 12 pistons, and 3 crankshafts. Nevertheless, it operates simply enough. So this polymerized water that is going to be added to regular water was something called Lyrium, and it was something that never existed at all. Bill Lear was a master of... He, he loved and hated the media at the same time. Bill Lear loved to get attention. 
he just hated talking to reporters and having to explain his ideas to people that he, I guess rightfully, thought were not as smart as he was. Bill Lear was a genius, and a guy that was coming in to write a story, whether it be Sports Illustrated or Esquire or newspapers or the local TV station, was not a genius nor an engineer, and he would ask very basic questions. When he did have to deal with somebody that had some, shall we say, engineering background, for instance, like the people from Popular Mechanics magazine, that is where he would get testy, and he would get pretty attitude, kind of, um, let's call it, get his dander up when they would start to question the physics of this project. So Bill Lear was questioned on, how are you planning on doing this with water? Because what you're talking about doing with water and what you're talking and how you're talking about doing it with these little condensers is impossible. It is physically against the the laws of nature what you're trying to do. And so uh, Lear shot back and said, well, we've developed Lyrium. And he made it up on the spot. They had not developed anything. Nobody developed anything. He had put his engineers on it after he had said it after he had verbalized that this thing exists, uh, he then said to his engineers, hey, um, we should probably try to figure out this whole lyrium thing because, um, frankly, uh, I said it exists and um, this is going to be a problem. So they would work on different things. And now I'm going to quote a story from 1990. Uh, rather, sorry, this is from May of 2009, Motorsport Magazine. It is a story about, uh, about Bill Lear and the... Steam IndyCar, written by Paul Fernley. And we get to this section on Lyrium, where he is actually interviewing engineers. So, and I quote, Lear was spending 350000 a week on this project. Publicly, he remained ebullient, but privately, he had become frustrated. Tomorrow wasn't good enough, and the problem? His target of 1,000 PSI at 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit was unrealistic for his motor. Available technology wasn't up for it, nor was water. Okay, we'll use Lyrium. Pardon me? Quote, Our chemist tried to create a better working fluid than water, said Norton, after Bill Lear claimed it existed. It was called lyrium. Lyrium A was some sort of freon. Lyrium B was an alcohol compound. We called the final attempt delirium. In fact, we worked with water the whole time. There was no magic fluid. It was just a bold boast that people spent a lot of time and money trying to make real. rut there are other problems. The cylindrical tower condensers weren't man enough, nor were the two radiators at the nose, but the biggest sticking point, often literally, was the expander's rotary valve inside the deltic engine. The double delta, I should say. Sighted at the ge- geographic center of the block, it controlled the steam's ingress and egress via ports between the top and dead centers of the boxing pistons. Given the pressures and temperatures, it was under the cosh. We couldn't get it to seal, said Engineer Phrase. I think the best we got was 900 PSI and 900 degrees Fahrenheit on the test rig. It was a beautiful engine, but way ahead of its time. It made a lovely sound until it broke. Today we'd use some form of ceramic composite and CNC machine fits accurate to the millionths. We could make it work today. They'd said they'd get to 1,000 horsepower, but they were struggling to get to 100 horsepower on the dyno. But there was torque and we had plenty of it. It twisted truck drive shafts like they were pieces pieces of licorice. It may not have been making the peak horsepower we wanted, but the amount of torque that it made would have made for tremendous acceleration. But that's all theoretical, of course, because in early March, Bill Lear ran out of patience. Quoting from a 1978 issue of Car and Driver, Dick Mosier, the former Chrysler engineer who developed the engine that we've been talking about, we were running higher pressures and speeds than had ever been done, pushing the state-of-the-art by a factor of 
and we had a running engine, albeit with a very large boiler, but we were learning. One of the problems was piston clearance. Stainless steel pistons running in cast iron bores made for a very strange combination. I had no idea what the expansion rates would be, and we had been working seven days a week. I told the technicians exactly how to run the test, and I took a weekend off to go racing. On Sunday, the engine seized because Bill Lear came in that day and wanted to run the engine without the proper oil. The result of that test was the engine seizing, braking, and Bill Lear effectively braking in one way or the other as well. He would almost immediately um, kind of fire the people involved on the engine side of the program. By firing the folks on the engine side of the program, he he all but completely boomeranged and changed directions with this project. Now, a guy like Bill Lear is not someone who's going to publicly ever admit defeat, and so, of course, he didn't. In fact, uh, he had originally announced that he'd enter the two steam-driven cars at the Indy 500 in 1969, but he came back and said, hey, we had a really rough winter in Reno. I was unable to finish my test track, and because of that, I'm telling you right now, I'm not coming this year. But you just wait and see. At the end of this year, I will definitely have race cars on a racetrack, and I am going to show you exactly what's going on. The, the idea of canceling this double delta engine program is cataclysmic in so many ways because, remember, this wasn't just going to be the race car engine. This was also going to stand as the basis for his passenger car program. This double delta engine was the linchpin of the entire operation, outside of things like condensers and other sort of uh, physical attributes that they needed to figure out. So when he immediately decides to stop development on the piston engine, he switches directions to turbines. And before we go completely down that road, I want to take one more kind of technical discussion or one more technical look at the Lear Vapordyne race car. And you can, again, find pictures. You can find the renderings. They actually did build one of these cars. The car did never ran. It was never built to be a functional race car, but it was a rolling example that they could show and did show at places like the New York International Auto Show. They showed the car, I believe, in April of 1969 at the New York International Auto Show. There's a funny story of the engineers basically thrashing to get the car into some sort of a, a rolling shape. And uh, this, this, once again, quoting from the May 2009 story from Motorsport Magazine. Lear admitted that his IndyCar project had been behind schedule, but blamed its withdrawal on the breakdown in his communications with USAC and Tony Holman, along with the weather. The latter had actually welcomed Lear. Those that ran the race for him, however, USAC, feared that alienating the internal combustion majority had already squeezed out gas turbines by strangling inlet sizes. In January, because there were no written steam regulations, USAC stated that it wished to see the Vapordyne in action before making an equivalency calculation. The expander didn't run until February, and Lear was right to surmise that he could not be ready for the Indy 500, only to have more obstacles placed in his path. The harsh truth is that he had always been chasing an unachievable goal, and chances are that Ken Wallace knew that too. It was disappointing, says Norton, who worked at the company. We still had a car to complete for the April's New York Auto Show, and we were hoping that we now had a bunch of time to do it right for 1970, for which four-wheel drive had already been banned at the Indy 500. So it was a crushing blow when Lear pulled the plug on the Delta engine. One Vapordyne was finished in time for its public debut, but its rollout was exactly that. The boys rigged up a temporary steering setup using an MG steering rack, and they finished in the wee hours and rolled the car towards the door. The driver turned left, the car went right and hit a post. They'd installed the steering rack upside down. 
With tiny trim tabs on the nose to make it look more racy, the Vapordyne was a strange-looking beast. It bristled with superb innovative engineering, but for once racing had not improved the breed. This was a proprietous time for steam vehicles, and Lear had the clout and money to make it happen, but he goofed by aiming for the moon when a less both boastful, more methodical, and longer-term approach probably would have been more beneficial to his cause. A less complex, i.e. less like a racing engine expander working within more realistic parameters may have been a usable car for steam engines on the highway. And then, who knows? Instead, Lear's $17 million investment only succeeded in antagonizing America's Big Three. And they did. They did antagonize the Big Three. We talked about that. They came, they visited, they looked, they were made nervous by this very rich man chasing this very crazy dream. So if we talk one last time about Vapordyne before we move on to really the next phase of this story, which is uh, the end phase, but still one that bears looking at, um, we have a car that's 192 inches long, 80 inches wide. I mean, this thing was going to be a tank as compared to most of the other Indy cars of that time. You can look back at the Lotus 64 that was run in 1969, which was a big car, and this thing was like three feet longer than that. So the overall height, only 27 inches tall, 103.5-inch wheelbase, 66.5-inch uh, track. The body was about 46 inches wide. The ground clearance, 2.5 inches. Inboard vented disc brakes. The springs and stampers, rather springs and shocks were designed by Monroe, and they were kind of cantilevered. They were placed horizontally. The tires, they had Firestone Indy tires on it, independent front suspension and rear suspension, four-wheel drive. 60% of the torque to the rear, 40% up front. And again, we talk about the other technical achievements. 20-inch wide engine, 18 inches long. Horsepower comparable to present Indy engines as claimed. Constant pressure vapor generator assures top performance. No tuning for altitude or environmental variations. Increasing torque with decreasing RPM. Kerosene is the combustible fuel used in the boiler. And the top speed in excess of current competition requirements. And the best is the acceleration stat. Acceleration, in capital letters, it says, you name it. And then this is the description from the Lear Motors Corporation. The championship class race car designed and built by Lear Motors represents the ability of space-age technology to extract optimum performance and efficiency from the vapor cycle steam engine. By selecting the vapor generator capacity and admittance, delta engine power can be varied. A 300-horsepower version will be installed in a California Highway Patrol car for evaluation. Thus, the race car serves as both a bold and unique entry in competition circles and as a competitive demonstrator for components which will be used in other applications. Lear Motors' presents a program is Lear Motors' present program is concerned with the development of a power plant range from 50 to 1,000 horsepower, embracing both reciprocating and turbine machinery and adaptable to practically every power requirement presently served by the internal combustion engine. Immediate applications are being made in the following areas: automobiles, trucks, Boats, buses, off-highway equipment, stationary power sources, and more. All applications achieve substantial gains in power-to-weight ratio, specific fuel consumption, reliability, and in reduced frequency and cost of maintenance. When steam is being used as the working fluid, it is a relatively simple thing to develop a motor. It's quite another thing to develop a complete and efficient power system. Motor, vapor generator, condenser, control system, auxiliaries, and vehicle interference or interface. Lear Motors Corporation has accomplished it in five short months. New space-age technologies are applied to thermodynamic controls and condensers. As a result, problems traditionally associated with steam are solved. The result is a beautiful, efficient, revolutionary vehicle. Measured by the standard of anyone, that is excellence.
and that is all complete made-up garbage because the thing didn't function. <laughs> it didn't move under its own power. It never, in its existence, which it does exist today, has never once moved under its own power. None of the problems that they purport to have solved, other than improving on some ancient technology, have actually been improved. So, what if we take this idea, and instead of trying to package it all in a little bitty race car, what if we put it in a passenger car? Well, the state of California provided uh, the means to do that, as the, the smog problem in California was becoming so bad in the 1970s, they were investigating almost any way to make it better. And again, we go back to the fact that Lear was initially brought into this idea with the uh, noble cause, if you will, of ending air pollution. Well, let's take that a step further. Bill Lear wasn't necessarily somebody who was bleeding hearts and wanted to uh, end air pollution, but what he wanted to do was be the guy that came up with the thing that could end air pollution to make a near endless sum of money. And so what he decided to do was get involved with this California government program where they were going to take squad cars from the police and they were going to give free cars away. GM if you were going to be involved in this program, GM was going to give you a car, and then you could fit your alternative power system to it, and then they would test it out in the fleet. The downside was if GM gave you the car, then you had to basically be in communication with them and uh, effectively share your secrets, share how you achieved what you did. So what, uh, <laughs> what Bill Lear said was, find out what kind of cars a California Highway Patrol buys, and they went and looked, and they found out that they had bought Dodge Polaris big old honking Dodge Polaris for the uh, 1970 model year. So Bill Lear went out and bought himself a 1970 Dodge Polara, and during his press conference when he was talking about his race car, impressed the, the socks right off of the reporter that was there by showing him the mock-up of the Dodge Polara that he was going to send to the California Highway Patrol so they could test it out as a steam-driven police car. Not only did he say this to the reporter, it actually ended up making national news. Listen to this. Well, Dwayne, this is the uh, California Patrol uh, mock-up car. Now, we'll deliver this to them sometime in probably the 1st of April. But this is a mock-up of exactly how the inside of the hood will look. This is the radiator. This over here is the auxiliary power plant that runs all the time that the steam is on or you've got the switch on. And uh, then this is the engine here, and this is the, bar. This is the steam generator. Though maybe in a quick fashion you can tell us uh, how the engine will function. Well, the engine itself is a six-cylinder engine, and I'd like to take this cover off of this mock-up here to show you the way that it operates. Uh, it's six cylinders, it has three crankshafts, it has 12 pistons, and the pistons go together in this fashion here. So what that does, it allows you to get more horsepower because you can get more expansion because the stroke can be shorter. You get double the expansion be uh, because you've got two pistons working in a single cylinder. And uh, it also gives you the opportunity of getting more horsepower because you can run it faster. The uh, torque on this engine will give you the torque of about a 600 horsepower engine. Power source is this uh, steam generator right here. And if you'll step over, I'll show you what's inside of that thing so you get a better idea. So the highway patrol car is interesting in the fact that he went out there and got the Polara to do this work on his own so he didn't have to kind of get hooked up with General Motors. But... One of the things you'll hear him mention or hear to mention about how he said they're going to deliver that car to the California Highway Patrol by early April. Remember what happened in March. The engine failed. He freaked out and fired everybody involved in, in delivering the double delta engine, which is what they had mocked up in the front of that car.
So the wheels came off the wagon like in spectacular and instantaneous fashion for uh, Bill Lear in this particular instance where uh, that double delta engine failed and basically the house of cards in a lot of ways kind of came down around him. To drive this point home, let's go back to Sports Illustrated in 1969 with Bob Autumn. Leary has a couple of other steam irons in the fire as well. There is the great highway patrol car for one. General Motors had offered to provide up to six new car bodies and $20,000 each for anybody who wanted to put a steam engine into them. Actually, General Motors figured that no one could do it and that they would finally put a stop to all this steam engine nonsense, says Wallace, so we responded right away. But Lear's tack was a little different, which is typical. No free cars, thanks, he said, because then anyone who accepted the GM plan would have to make their steam secrets public. Instead, when Lear discovered that the patrol had ordered a convoy of 440 cubic inch Dodge Polaris for the 1970 year, he promptly bought a new Polara. The crew mocked, mocked up the engine for steam power and then called the patrol back to see it. They went away walking on air, Lear says, and they indicated that they were great white hope. We were their great white hope now as far as the steam cars are concerned. Naturally, we'll give them this one without cost. They never gave him anything. Never finished it. But again, he was there. He was able to show these people this mock-up. He's able to show them something that exists, and it seems so close to being completed. And yet, when that engine seized up and he freaked out, he put a stop to all of it. But he did not put a stop to his obsession with trying to power things with steam. And that brings us to the final stanza of the story where we transition from a piston-powered IndyCar to a steam turbine-powered bus. Because that ends up being the lasting kind of legacy of the Lear Motor Company is there is a program introduced in the early 70s. Once again, there are government grants involved, and this is where a lot of people start to question Bill Lear's motivations here. They think he's in it for the government money. Now, I would agree with this to to some extent, only to say that, yes, he was definitely involved in these programs that got some government subsidies, but he spent way more out of his own pocket than he ever got from the government. So in my heart of hearts, I really do believe the fact that um, <laughs> the fact that he was wanting to do this, uh, if for nothing else, to prove that he was smarter than the average bear and that he was the smartest guy in the world that actually figured out how to overcome the shortcomings of steam. But as the case may be, he did get money from the government trying to work on these ideas. And so now we move on to a research paper written by a man named Joel Newman, who's a law professor at Wake Forest. And this is a research paper that was based around um, tax credits and R&D tax credits for corporations. And, and he used the development of steam cars and vehicles as his kind of um, audience here. So basically, his, uh, his theory is that these, these companies that got a lot of tax credits for doing R&D work, um, R&D work was aided by that. And so he looks at a lot of different steam cars over the years, including um, the McCulloch steam car, which, you know, you ever a McCulloch chainsaw? Well, Robert McCulloch was a, a an incredible inventor himself, someone that we'll probably end up doing an episode on down the road. But McCulloch actually developed a steam car in the 1950s that never came to market. Uh, they made a prototype, and that was as far as it got. Anyway, uh, Bill Lear is really the last kind of major league name that is in there trying to do this. And there are a couple of people trying to build these buses. But we quote from this research paper. Since steam engines tended to be too bulky for a car, Lear decided to try buses. In 1970, the state of California obtained $2.3 million in federal grants from the Department of Transportation and initiated the California Steam Bus Project. Three companies were to build experimental steam buses to be tested in San Francisco, San Diego, and Los Angeles. Lear got the San Francisco contract. 
General Motors gave Lear a 50-passenger bus and a Chevrolet Monte Carlo to play with, and on February 11, 1972, Lear unveiled his Lear steam bus to reporters in his Nevada facility. He gave the reporters a ride for a while, then the driver feared that the boiler would explode and the rides were terminated. The reporters were not terribly impressed. This was maybe a bit of a rough start, but the, the steam bus was a functional and really well-engineered piece, and there was actually a documentary film made about it, and we're going to listen to Bill Lear kind of talking about some of these problems in his own words and what they did to, to kind of advance the bus project. They completely abandoned the piston engine. They used a turbine-style design, and here's Bill Lear talking a little bit in the beginning here about his steam bus, and in this conversation, he's speaking with his engineers as they have made a breakthrough in controlling the steam that would ultimately power the turbine. We had uh, our usual small problems of getting it going, but then it took off fine. And what was the top speed you, you attained? If that would have been in the car, how fast would we have gone? Well, you were at 25,000 and 28,000 for a while, so we were a little bit over 100 miles an hour. It's easily as good as it was Wednesday or better. Well, then you, you think the, the whole control problem is, is sound. Regenerator materials are on order, the turbine gearboxes are made up, the turbines are ready to be made up. Because external combustion engines of the type required were not available on the market, the three vendors had to design, develop, and build the experimental power plants by hand. So when you hear the engineers talking about 25,000, 28,000, my opinion is they're talking about the RPM that the turbine was spinning and how that would have translated as Lear's asking, how fast would have we been going if it was in the car? The car being this mythical Monte Carlo that was supposedly built along with the bus. There's been no record of the Monte Carlo uh, has not surfaced, so to speak. There have been a couple General Motors steam cars built after right around this point, but to anyone's knowledge, the Monte Carlo was uh, never actually operational. So let's talk a little bit about this bus, continue on with this, because it really is the final stage of the story, and we continue on with the research paper that I quoted moments ago. In August 1972, the Lear Vapor turbine-powered coach actually began service in San Francisco. It ran, though not without problems, for about two weeks. Lear had it driven up and down the city's steepest hills and then from San Francisco to Reno. The California Steam Bus Project claimed that the bus was a success. Elated, Lear took the bus to Washington and asked for a $30 million grant in 1972 money. He didn't get it, though he did get $900,000 from the EPA. Soon afterward, he installed a, team, a steam turbine in a Monte Carlo and had it driven from Stead, Nevada, to San Francisco, where it broke down. Again, there is no actual physical record of that happening. Lear had hoped that General Motors would support his efforts. Their tests, however, showed that his engine would only get about .85 miles per gallon on a simulated city bus route. General Motors declined to buy the rights to the engine or to Lear's research. Then the Federal Department of Transportation decided it would no longer fund the California Steam Bus Project. After GM, Fiat, and the federal government refused to support him any further, Lear finally pulled the plug on his steam project in 1975. He had spent $17 million in 1975 money. In an earlier speech, Lear diagnosed his problems. A steam engine will never be mass-produced because it's too costly to build. It would be impossible to maintain, and for larger cars, the condenser would be too big to fit. You couldn't find a garage mechanic who could repair one. I told the federal government this, much to their chagrin. Though they thought the steam car was the answer to the pollution problem, and I was the savior, I let them down. One of the things 
that was really impressive, though, about Lear and about the turbine that they created was it did have a little bit of a lasting legacy. And in this conversation, Lear is very excited talking about the design innovation they had during the height of his bus craze in the early 1970s. We studied everything that Abner Doble did and why he did it. And from that, that was our starting point. Now, remember that they, at the present time, the automotive industry has spent about between 50 and 70 billion dollars on the development of the internal combustion engine over a period of 70 years. Obviously, it's going to be uh, the trick of the year or the trick of the century to come up with a substitute for what they have been able to accomplish in those years. We took us two years to find out that all of the ideas we had for small reciprocating engines just weren't worth fooling with, and that we had to go to a turbine. So we came up with a wheel, and this wheel has a hundred blades on it, and we can put a nozzle on one side of it, and the steam comes out and pushes the wheel. And as far as I can see, we have licked the major problems, the problems we have from here on out, are the kind of problems you have when you assemble anything together, uh, such as belts and gears and pulleys and so forth. But we think that we, we can deliver a bus sometime uh, within the next three or four months that will be outstanding in its performance and its appearance and its economy. And of course, my objective is to ultimately be able to outperform the diesel engine as far as economy is concerned. At the present time, we don't expect that we can do it. But after all, right now, the important thing is, what will the, the pollution output? And unfortunately for William Lear, Bill, if you will, the pollution output was going to be very high. And it was going to be very high just simply on the volume of fuel that was going to be burned. Obviously, if it was only going to get 0.85 miles per gallon, even if you were burning a clean fuel, you'd be burning it at such a high rate trying to make the steam, trying to maintain the steam and the pressure in the engine that ultimately you're going to burn so much of your cleaner fuel that you will probably make more pollution than you would burning a smaller volume of a dirtier one. An interesting uh, quote here from one of the Lear engineers. Lear seemed, to be, Lear seemed to care more about the thrill of the chase than about the regular boring returns of business success. There were six or seven things all always going on at once, all due Wednesday and all undercapitalized. Lear was a guy who had an idea every day and we'd chase off in a different direction. He never exercised the discipline to see them through. He robbed yesterday to feed today. The steam project was a consuming too much money and Lear saw the other projects as get-rich-quick schemes. To Lear, it was a game. He not only understood that his steam engine might never meet his projections, but he also knew he might ever come up with a decent steam engine. Basking in the hot media lights, however, was having fun with his money, and if he had to eat crow someday, he'd do it and move on to something else. Everyone who tried to develop a commercially viable steam car ultimately failed. The technical difficulties were huge, the money demands were enormous, and the competing technologies were very powerful. The last two who tried, McCulloch and Lear, also had personalities which perhaps did not lend themselves to long-term single-minded pursuits, especially one of such a difficult task. So that is the story of how Bill Lear, one of the great inventors of the 20th century, or really of any age, tried to beat the laws of physics and ultimately failed. No matter how much money he had to throw at the problem, no matter how much brain power, no matter how many Svengali's he hired to try to solve this issue, 
They couldn't make a condenser small enough to go Indy racing. They couldn't make a Delta style or a Deltic style 12 cylinder or 12 piston V6 engine functional for a racing environment nor for a street environment. And they couldn't overcome the laws of physics by burning too much fuel to power a heavy bus with a steam driven turbine engine. The fact of the matter is steam still drives our daily lives, powers our homes, and powers many of the cars you see driving down the road today. They just does it indirectly by generating the power through those steam turbines at power plants across the country. Thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast, a fascinating story about a unique American in Bill Lear, and one that reached for the stars and fell a little bit short in this one aspect of his life, but has had a measurable effect on your life and mine every single day when you turn on the radio or when you climb into an airplane and fly safely to your destination. Thanks for listening to the Dorkomotive Podcast. We'll be back soon. Check us out at dorkomotive.com, and if you like the show, you can support us there. Thank you very much. This episode of the Dorkomotive Podcast is presented by Aeromotive. Since 1994, Aeromotive has been a leader in the high-performance aftermarket, manufacturing pumps, fittings, regulators, and now in-tank solutions for high-performance cars, trucks, and marine applications. Visit them online at aeromotiveinc.com. Remember, if you can race it, Aeromotive can fuel it.